Sports fans of the Rio Grande Valley, welcome to another episode of the South Texas Border Sports Podcast. This week's featured guest is from San Antonio, Texas. He used to be the former sports editor at the Monitor, and now he is a sports beat writer for the San Antonio Express, Mr. Greg Luca. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the South Texas Border Sports Podcast. Before I present today's guest, I just want to take a moment and thank all the fathers out there who have done everything for their kids up to this point, including mine. Um, I don't see my dad on an everyday basis like the way I used to, but uh, it's just a reflection of how things can either easily deteriorate or bring upon good and bad memories. Uh, but now jumping into to some sports topics, uh, Major League Baseball. I'm very disappointed. I'm not being able to see the Atlanta Braves on live TV right now. But get your act together, please. You're the only sports league in the United States that has not presented anything right now. I know the players want to get more games in, but more than likely, you'll end up seeing a lot of the younger, good talents play winter ball. As I discussed in the previous podcast, that you're going to see a lot of young talent go out and play winter ball elsewhere at this point. Um, now to bring in my guest. He is in San Antonio right now. He works out of the San Antonio Express and MySA.com. He is a sports writer who used to work here in the Rio Grande Valley, Mr. Greg Luca. Greg, thanks for coming on. Absolutely right. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? It's all good, man. So how's the uh, sports world treating you in San Antonio these days? I know you've been putting out stories left and right. So let's uh, get to the chase. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting, actually. I mean, once all sports shut down in March, there had to be a little bit of concern with some people about how are we going to fill sports sections and what's it going to look like. And we did make some pretty big structural changes here. Basically, our section got combined with the entertainment section, so we have less space to fill every day. But from my perspective, I've been able to keep extremely busy just because there's so many different ripple effects of a huge change like this in terms of how is every organization handling keeping their players ready, the financial implications, the the process of coming back and the precautions needed for that and so much more that's been touched on. And then now with everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement, that's a whole other arena to try to wade into and understand different perspectives and share those. So for me covering UTSA, Texas State a little bit, Incarnate Word, and then we have some smaller colleges around here I've checked in with, you know, Trinity, Our Lady of the Lake, Texas Lutheran. Um, there's there's another one I'm forgetting, of course. But then also at SAFC, the soccer team, I know you guys are very familiar with them down there. Uh, the San Antonio Missions, AAA Baseball, and the, the San Antonio Rampage, you know, they had their franchise essentially cut short by this because when they announced that the AHL season wasn't going to be concluded, 
the Rampage were leaving town after this season. So we saw the last Rampage game without even knowing it. So there's been so many different areas that this has had an impact because, again, this touches everybody in sports. So there's been a lot to really keep up with and keep track of. So from my perspective, I know a lot of other writers and a lot of other papers have dealt with layoffs and furloughs and things like that. But we've been able to keep everyone through this crisis, which is a huge credit to Hearst and to our newspaper. And I've been able to keep pretty busy with so much that's been going on. And now you've seen a couple of indigenous franchises. Uh, you saw the AAF, the American Alliance of Football, with the San Antonio Commanders, and you've even seen the end of the San Antonio Rampage. But I wanted to touch base first with the uh, Commanders first. Sure. Were there any like signs of the league shutting down? Was there like any? Um, I wouldn't want to use the word suspicious here, but was there like abnormal activity going on with the team as to how they got their uh, practices in, their games in, and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, it's actually pretty funny because, well, two reasons. The first one was being in San Antonio where the team had more support than any other team in the Alliance. There was 30,000 people here for some of these games and they were going to set a new record with the next week's game right before the, right after the league was canceled. They had Johnny Manziel's team was coming here and they were lined up to have 35 or 40,000 in the Alamo Dome. At least that's what they say. So we had a different perspective on it here just because from our vantage point, the league was thriving and people were interested in it. And I probably covered it more intensely than any of the other markets because it corresponds to that level of interest that we had. The other thing is some of those warning signs were a lot easier to see afterward than as it was unfolding, which is kind of, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But for instance, there was one issue where I think it was week two, maybe the league struggled to make payroll or they missed payroll. And they said they had switched over to a new payroll company and everybody got paid on time. And so it was all good. And then, they announced Tom Dundon's commitment to to be a, I don't know how you even want to term it. He ended up being basically the owner of the league just because of the size of his contribution. But at that time, he was a, a contributor or whatever the term was that they used at that point. And that seemed like good news because he was contributing so much or committed, you know, $250 million or whatever it had been. Enough that they thought they could keep the league going for three years. And that was the thing from the very start they had said – we have a three-year runway to get this off the ground before we even feel pressured to be profitable because of the financial commitments we have lined up. And everybody believed that, and everybody I talked to to this day still says that that's kind of the impression they were operating under. But then some of those warning signs did start to pop up. And then I remember kind of late in the season, once Dundon took over and started kind of rearranging some of the books, there were certain things that started to get adjusted and just seemed a little suspicious to use your word like the maybe they weren't traveling the team writer and team social media people or whoever for the road games they were just having the people who are on site do all of those so like just kind of trimming a couple of hotel rooms or travel tickets here and there and you know you see enough things like that and it starts to add up a little bit but i think all along it just felt like dundon's threats to shut down the league or to fold the alliance were just to try to force action it didn't seem like it was going to happen until the day that it did very very interesting uh, storytelling there now let's switch over to the hockey arena at the point where the whole family had had already 
wanted to sell the team at some point, but then there was also that possibility of another hockey NHL team taking over the club. Well, uh, how did you come upon? The, how did you find out upon the the team was gonna be sold and relocated uh, for the uh, rampage? Yeah, it was really interesting. I don't know how many people had a strong idea that it was coming, and I certainly wasn't one of them until it was announced. Uh, I think it worked out that basically it was just kind of a losing endeavor, I think. I mean, they, they had pretty good attendance. Like They were in right around the middle or maybe even the top half barely of the league in attendance, maybe around 6,000 fans, but attendance had been declining. I don't think it's necessarily cheap to operate a hockey franchise, even though it's in the same building where you were hosting Spurs games. So you already have the venue. You have to move the ice and all that. But point being, the 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 Spurs are notoriously very tight-lipped on, well, everything, but especially the financials and the inner workings of their organization. So we don't have a really great grasp of why they felt like they had to make this move. But certainly the Vegas franchise was in the market to buy a team and these guys were willing to sell theirs because they just weren't getting a whole lot out of it. And so there you go. I mean, that's kind of how it plays out. And the speculation around here was that it was kind of a profit driven move, just that they weren't making a whole lot off of that. And those margins might be a little bit tighter if the Spurs, you know, their playoff streak seems very, very likely to end this year, even before everything unfolded. And, and then we'll see how they're set up for the future. But, you know, if Popovich is going to retire soon and maybe there's a rebuilding phase, money might be a little bit tighter. You're not getting that playoff revenue and people aren't, aren't as interested. You might not sell out every game anymore. So I think these are things that they were kind of looking ahead at and just saw an opportunity to move on from the rampage. But again, a lot of that is speculation. There's so little that they told us or were willing to share about their rationale for it. As I'm being joined by San Antonio Express sports writer, uh, Greg Luca. Uh, Greg, I know you spent some time uh, here in the Rio Grande Valley being the sports editor of the uh, the Monitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has life changed for you uh, switching over to uh, a relatively bigger market? Yeah, it's been certainly very different. You can start from the, the basic job functions uh, because being an editor at the Monitor requires having your hands in a lot of different things and you're, you're obviously planning out the section every day, what it's going to look like. You're reading everybody's stories and, and giving them direction. You're in different meetings with the other editors. But then on top of that, at least the way I handled it, is I was also trying to cover the Vipers and cover UTRGV and cover RGVFC. So it was a very crazy schedule, and I didn't have an opportunity to focus as much on any of those things as I wanted to. But at the same time, I had the benefit of being in charge, so I could I could carve out those windows for myself if I needed them. Here, you know, you're part of a bigger machine, and I think our sports staff has diminished somewhat from previous years, as a lot of newsrooms around the country have shifted. We really have basically right now we have two Spurs guys, we have two columnists, one of them's also the editor. We have a high school reporter. We have a guy based in Austin who covers UT, and we have myself. So. It's really seven or eight writers, and then there's a copy desk staff and and thing in the design team and all of that. But a lot of that is shared with the Chronicle, the way we're structured here. So with the Houston Chronicle, I should say they're they're a sister paper of ours under the Hearst umbrella. So, but from my perspective specifically, it means that I'm able to focus more on just 
writing and covering things I cover, which is all that stuff I outlined earlier at the colleges and the minor league teams around here. And that's been good, but it's still a lot to balance just to be plugged in on all of those different issues. Even now when none of them are playing, it's like, well, what is this league's return to play plan? And what is this guideline for return to play? And, you know, all of these different things. And it, like following the baseball developments day to day is a, is a job in and of itself, it seems like sometimes. And we're just kind of waiting for word that there's not going to be a minor league season. You know, I think that's pretty common knowledge at this point, but um so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a different experience to not have the authority that I did there and be part of a bigger machine, but I'm, uh, I'm very happy with the move so far. It's been cool to, to get a chance to, to write for a bit of a larger audience. Um, you mentioned being part of a, part of a bigger audience. And now that you have uh, multiple uh, colleges to cover, like Incarnate Word, UTSA, and a lot of these smaller uh, NAIA division, division one and two schools, um, I've got to ask you, uh, what's been the consensus about regionalizing the sports schedules, at least for UTSA and Incarnate Word, to try to have a more of a regional uh, scheduling due to the COVID? Yeah, some of these have been announced and some of them haven't. I know, if I remember correctly, the Southland already made their announcement, which would cover Incarnate Word and Conference USA has yet to make their announcement, even though a lot of people are talking about it in a very public way. But I think for a lot of the smaller sports, especially, you will see more regionalized conference play to just in terms of like, how many times do you play this many, this team from that side of the, of the conference versus sticking to teams that are your travel partners. But I don't know if all that's been ironed out yet. I think what we've seen a lot of places is that rather than, having to make huge adjustments to regionalize the schedule. I think there's a big push to shrink the number of games. I think we've seen where the number of conference contests in general has shrunk and at the D2 and D3 levels, just their minimum requirement for games is lower. So that allows people that have been hit harder by this from a financial perspective to be able to make the adjustments to stay afloat. As I'm being joined by Greg Luke of the San Antonio Express, uh, Greg, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to reach back and, and touch upon. The minor league baseball season being canceled. What do you make of the players asking for more games uh, as far as the, for the major league baseball season is concerned? I've always been on side of the players to get to get their pay, to get their games in. Now we may be facing a season without games and thus seeing a lot of the younger prospects uh, travel to the Dominican, the Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Mexico, just to get them some games in. Yeah, it's tough because there's obviously no easy answer or else they would have already found it. I think you can understand the players' push to want to play more games if they're going to be paid a prorated portion of their salary. But my very baseline understanding and i'm not prepared to back this up with facts but i believe that the baseball players get a larger portion of the revenue especially under these things that they're proposing compared to a lot of other sports it's because theirs is fixed where other leagues i think is like a percentage of the revenue so basically you can see where both sides could be accused of being greedy because the the owners who are generally going to be really rich to begin with obviously are not wanting to take as much of a loss where they could probably handle a little bit of a loss and the players 
are trying to maximize their value and how much they can earn in a given year, which, you know, it's one thing to think about that in terms of all the big names who are pretty well off anyway, but it, it matters to a lot of the, the lesser known guys or the guys on the end of the roster who have to kind of maximize their livelihood for however many years they're going to be able to be in the league. So you understand both sides of it, but you wish they'd be able to just come to a conclusion, especially given that they seemed to have an agreement in place going back to March for like a worst case scenario framework and they're just not enacting it. No, well, point well taken as I am joined by Greg uh, Luca. Um, staying on the subject of baseball, um, you get to San Antonio and it's now a AAA town. Uh, how do you feel that San Antonio is being very close to being a major league uh, baseball team? How close is it or is it very good to say that they're a good AAA franchise? Yeah, I don't even know if I can go that far. I think the attendance has been fine. It's not it's not great, but they the issue that they have and it has been an issue since before I got here, probably long before I got here is they've always talked about the ballpark. Right now they play at a place called Wolf Stadium and it's not it's not impossible to get there, but it's just sort of in the middle of nowhere relatively. It's like a 15 or 20 minute drive from downtown and if you're trying to get there for a 7 p.m. baseball game, it could be a 20 or 30 minute drive from downtown with traffic. I've had that I've had that issue before trying to go cover things. So you understand that the push to have a downtown ballpark and how much of a difference that can make for interest in attendance. Whereas right now it feels almost kind of out of the way, to be honest. So to say that it's like ready to be a major league city, I don't know if I would go that far just based on the interest in the team that exists here now. In fact, I think we might see a slide back to double a with the restructuring of everything if they're not able to reach some kind of a new ballpark agreement so there's a lot in the influx in the minor leagues right now because even before covid and everything they were struggling to come to terms on a new professional baseball agreement which sort of governs the relationship between the majors and minor league baseball so as all of that unfolds and unfolds in a much more difficult to navigate sense under the new circumstances, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I really don't know how it's going to shake out at this point, but I don't think MLB is in the immediate future here. And now jumping over to another pitch, San Antonio FC. Yeah. RGB FC dreaded rivals. (laughs) Now that moratorium has been lifted until June the 24th to assume full uh, contact practice as mandated by the USL. How has the team been adjusted to uh, coming up with a practice schedule where now they have everybody in place and trying to prepare for a possible shortened season now uh, due to COVID? Yeah, it was actually really interesting to talk to them right after all of this started happening, how they were switching to an online training method where basically every player had a, had a ball and they were in their own apartment and they had a, you know, if you had like a 10 by 10 space, you could do all of the different exercises and dribblings and kind of training that they wanted you to do. And there was like even a tactical component to it where they would like in the middle of a workout, they'd show a video clip and then the players would have to write down on paper how they would 
you know, defend this or how they would attack this formation or whatever it may be. And then at the end of the session, they were kind of graded. So to have to do that while your heart's going and you're sweating and you're in the middle of a workout, it's a, it was an interesting way to try to simulate the season. And the challenging part about it is the way their schedule worked out in line with the way everything unfolded with COVID was they had just played their opener. And I think that goes for a lot of USL teams is you, you went through this whole training camp of gearing up for the season and then you play one game and now suddenly you're back on the sidelines for an in, indefinite amount of time. So I think they, they advanced from there eventually into players being able to use the team facility and some outdoor training, but it was basically like within the groups of their living arrangement, if that makes sense. So it's like, if you have four guys who share an apartment or live near each other in an apartment complex, they're exposed to each other anyway, so they can go work out at the facility together. It was kind of the idea. And I guess it, it remains to be seen how they'll, how they'll advance to this larger training format from there. I think that was just announced earlier today. So I haven't, I don't have all the details on that yet, but I think they're probably going to want to get back to regular practices as soon as possible. The issue is, I mean, particularly here, we've seen a real resurgence in the number of positive cases lately that makes it feel difficult to be restarting a season on the date they targeted, which I believe was July 11th. And a lot of the details for that are not are not out yet either in terms of how, like what a match schedule looks like and how all of that's going to be structured. So I think they have a lot of work to do to be ready to go. And it feels like from a national health perspective, we're trending in the wrong direction. So it just sort of remains to be seen. As I'm being joined here by uh, Greg from San Antonio Express, uh, one of the things that, at least down here in the Rio Grande Valley, there's been also a, a nice resurgence of cases, but I blame that due to the fact that there's been more available testing, more testing sites available for people to get tested. And uh, and I will say this much publicly, I've been tested, I've been tested, thankfully, so... Oh, great. All, bit, all is safe for now. Um, now, the, the, with the league wanting to bring back a July 11th window to start these games, uh, what rumblings have you heard that, you, that the league wants to have everything under a regional calendar? Has there been a specific talks that, okay, we're going to group the four Texas teams, the two Oklahoma teams, plus New Mexico and Arizona together. Uh, what kind of talks have you heard about a regionalized schedule so that way they can keep the number of infections down? Yeah, I don't have any specific insider info on this, but what I've seen from a lot of other sources is that it's basically what you're saying. I think I've, I've heard pitches for like a four-division plan essentially where it just makes travel travel easier and more convenient um and how you would draw those lines is going to be interesting so we'll see what they come up with but um i remember i believe that part of the conversation when they were agreeing to a return to play plan in a more general sense was do we want to bring all of the teams to a specific site like the nba and i believe like mls is doing and I think they decided it would be more cost prohibitive to have to house that many people and travel that many people to a specific site for that length of time. So they chose to do it this other way. And I don't, I mean, theoretically, if you're playing home games at teams, home sites, yes, you're only having to pay for housing and on a much smaller scale, but their travel seems to be indefinitely more difficult and the risk feels a lot higher. So I think that's just a tough 
a tough needle they'll have to thread, and we'll see how they try to balance it. But I really don't know. I would have thought that with June, with July 11th being not that far away, we might have some more of those answers right now. But I think we're still we're just still waiting. As I'm being joined by uh, Greg Luca, uh, Greg, one of the topics that that's been coming up here, at least locally in the Valley, and I'm and I know you you haven't kept up with it because you you've had. Uh, so many assigned stories that you keep uh, pumping out for the San Antonio Express is the college realignment and some of the sports uh, being dropped. I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on, on some of these things that are happening. I, I know you've covered UTRGV in the past where you've had teams spread out from as far as uh, Rio Grande Valley to Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Across the uh, United States. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, on sports being dropped. Yeah, I think – Certainly, I don't think we'll see any of those changes for this current upcoming academic year because it would just take too much effort to realign everything. But every school is really going to have to look at their budget and see how hard they've been hit. And if there's like a, a, a real resurgence in the fall that really throws off or even a resurgence that continues right now that throws off all sorts of different plans then to what extent do you have to adjust your budget, not just this year, but long-term? And if it, and if enough people feel like the only way that they can function at the level they want to and play the amount of games they'd like to is to have a more regional conference, then you could see a push for that. But there's so many other things that go into whether teams or schools make good conference rivals or good, you know, that they should share that same spaces. A lot of it has to do with your budget and just how, how strong you are competitively and what sports you offer and things like that. So I don't think it would be seamless. Like you'd almost have to overpack the conferences to do it regionally just because like if only eight of them play women's soccer or whatever out of the 18 that's in there, at least you could still have a league, you know, just to pick one example. So it, it's not the most seamless process, but I really do think if, if, this becomes a very trying year where athletics programs lose a lot of money. They might look at that out of necessity, but man, how long has conference realignment been a topic? You know, there's not an easy answer to that because otherwise we'd already be in some kind of a setup that makes sense and we wouldn't see the shuffles as often as we do. Mm. Yeah, interesting take because I mean, as schools uh, continue to drop sports um, recently, uh, the WAC had a Board of Governors meeting or Board of Trustees meeting to correct myself whether they would save their baseball program or not, which was one of the uh, hot topics uh, going into today, you know, and one of the things that, that I've been reading is that, okay, they haven't hired their baseball coach. They haven't hired uh, all a lot of their players have gone into the transfer portal, so uh, there's been a uh, a boatload of news waiting to come out of there. Hmm. Which school is that? Chicago State. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's been, I mean, back when I was there, I haven't followed that their program specifically in a couple of years, but I remember they've had some extremely small, like they had one of the years, this freshman class that came in was just minuscule, and it feels like the the college in general is struggling. There was some sort of issue with the state budget where they weren't getting the same appropriation they thought. And it's one of those things where it just kind of felt like they would have to drop 
athletics or drop out of division one in general, but that's just speculation. Like I don't know anybody there. So it's, um, yeah, that's definitely one that requires monitoring. It sounds like, especially with baseball, but the thing to remember with any of these changes is there's always going to be a title nine consideration too. So it's not the easiest thing to, to drop a sport because you might have to drop a corresponding sport or else you risk some kind of imbalance there. I've got to ask you, you know, you left the Rio Grande Valley, San Antonio, you, it just seems that the transition has been seamless for you. What's been some of the uh, things that you've been able to find much, uh, much easier up there? Oh, that's interesting, huh? Uh, I think one thing that's interesting here is because there's just a larger population base, the level of engagement with the things that I write is sometimes higher. Now I'll say like the in, like when I write a story on, let's say the Rampage or the SAFC doesn't always do that well, but like there's a community of dedicated UTSA fans that exists here that doesn't necessarily exist in the same volume for UTRGV. A lot of the stuff I wrote UTRGV, I don't know how many people read it, but I didn't always get a lot of feedback and I enjoyed covering them and I think it's a, a well a well run program. I've still been following the basketball team and I think that they're clearly on the way up at the moment. But it's a shame that the season got cut short. It would have been interesting to see. Actually I don't know, did they did they end up playing out the WAC tournament? How did do you know how that resolved? That that actually got cut at the end of UTRGB women's uh, game or even before it even started, you know, uh, they only got the first women's football game in and then everything went the berserk. Yeah. So the men didn't get to play at all. No. Yeah. It just felt like they were on kind of a strong run there at a certain point of the season. And it would have been interesting to see how it would have played out. So anyway, I guess the point being, regardless of how well they were doing, Maybe there were some volleyball stories that got some good feedback, strangely, just because I think they were happy to have some press. But for the most part, there wasn't a huge interest in, in, in their athletics program. And I think it's still growing. And especially with the rebranding, there's, some, there's still some sort of like uh, awareness and understanding and relationship to be built there. But oh, and football is obviously a huge component of that as well, because that's what everybody latches on to. But I have found that the, the community of fans here who react to the things that I put out is a lot bigger than it was in – at, in the Rio Grande Valley. And with football being the caveat sport up there at San Antonio with, with two Division One programs, one playing F, FCS, Neo, and FBS, um, what it, as we broach the subject of football, I know you covered the, uh, a little bit on the uh, feasibility study at UTRGV. What uh, do you think the Valley is is ready for a college football program, at, at least at the 1AA level as it is now? Yeah, I don't know. I remember when I was there, we got a hold of the feasibility study, and those the people who wrote the feasibility study seemed to think that it could work. They were basically, but I think they had to it, maybe stretch is the right word to to make it fit the requirements that they were looking for with some of these benchmarks. So, for example instead of thinking of it just as Edinburgh, they were pulling in, 
you know, the population and the income numbers from a lot of different Valley cities and sort of assuming this would become the Valley's team. And there's no, I mean, that's a totally reasonable assumption. It's just, you know, I don't know if anybody from Brownsville is driving over to Edinburgh for a UTRGB football game, you know? So um, I think sometimes with the athletics programs, it might be a situation where you, I'm trying to think of the right way to word this. You don't want to start football if it's not going to work out, but sometimes you want to take that hit initially or for a couple of years, just because that's your pathway to being a bigger, more important program, especially in a region like that where football is king. So, you know, there's, there's examples of programs like Gonzaga or whatever, where you are a basketball school and you're still very successful and gain a lot of publicity for that. But I think in, in the Rio Grande Valley, the pathway to be a important athletics program that people are invested in and care about is to have a football team. Now, that being said, there's new, so many hurdles to getting that set up, right? From, from where do you play to how do you fund all the scholarships to then what has to happen with adding these other sports to make Title IX balance out. And, you know, there's so many, so many different accommodations you'd have to make for that to be feasible. And I don't, I don't really know if they're ready. It's, it was funding, even at UTSA, you find out just how important fundraising is to every college athletics program and their ability to, to take, to undertake any kind of, like here they're building a new, it's called the race facility, but it's like a office space slash meeting room slash locker room slash practice facility for, excuse me, for really all sports, but mainly football. And, the process of funding that was difficult. They ended up having to finance it out of the athletics budget over the next 25 years, at least in part. So for you, for UTRGV, you'd have to be able to secure a lot of capital first to be able to build, you know, I mean, you would need a facility like that somewhere where you could have practice space and locker rooms. And I don't know if there's even a clear venue for it either. I mean, you don't want to be playing at a high school stadium if you can avoid it. And although, I guess, you know, that could potentially be worked out. So I'm just throwing out a bunch of different factors, which is sort of an illustration of of just some of the stuff that you have to consider to make that work. But I think keeping that as a goal is smart, especially based on the community that they serve and where they're located, because I think that's your path to really getting people to care about what's going on there. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate all the hindsight about the San Antonio sports world and at least here in the uh, southern part of uh, Texas if you include the markets of Laredo and and Corpus Christi Uh, it was great catching up and talking to you again Uh, I hope we can do this soon Uh, I I appreciate the time and efforts yeah absolutely thanks for having me I'll be happy to come back on we can talk about hopefully someday soon we'll be able to talk about some return to play plans and what that's looking like All right. Thank you so much. Hello, sports fans of the Rio Grande Valley. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Coming up next week, we will have Matt Castro, the original founder of the South Texas Generals, on our podcast. Don't forget to follow our social media pages on Facebook. Look us up under South Texas Border Sports, Instagram, South Texas Border Sports, and on Twitter, SOTX 
A-T-H-L-E-T-I-X. Remember, fans, we drop an episode every week here on Anchor.fm. And don't forget, you can also tune in to our podcast on Anchor FM or subscribe to Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, and on Spotify.